Hey, Church in the Valley, Alhambra. I am speaking this morning at Hope Church in Fort Worth, Texas. Hope is one of the sister churches within the 17-6 network, and actually many men within our network got their training at Hope Church, and so I have the privilege of speaking to their church today. And like I mentioned last week, we're in the middle of a series called Teaming Together. And over the next few weeks, you're going to get to hear from different network pastors in Southern California who are going to share just how we team together within the 17.6 network. And so it's my privilege to introduce to you guys today Bevan Unra. Bevan is the senior pastor of Seabreeze Church in Huntington Beach, California. He's been there since 1990. And Bevan has done a great job of leading that congregation to really grow and to reach uh, the community. Uh, even more than that, Bevan is actually a personal friend of mine. He's been a real encouragement to me through the years. One thing I've really appreciated about Bevan is his ability to take scripture and to teach from it and to really show how it applies to everyday life. And so I know that you're going to really enjoy listening to him this morning. And so I encourage you to to take notes, to listen, and if you haven't had a chance to introduce yourself uh, to him. And so join me in, in welcoming up Bevan Unruh. Well, that, uh, that's my first virtual introduction, so I think, I think it went very well. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you here this morning. As Alex mentioned, most Sundays, uh, I'm at Seabreeze, the church I pastor in Huntington Beach. Uh, but this morning, as he said, the four of us pastors have switched places. We're kind of going on the road. And uh, we talked uh, at the beginning of this year about wanting each of our churches to get a better sense of how we team together as churches. And so we talked about how we would do that, and we thought one of the good ideas was just to get each of us in each other's churches so that we'd get a chance to meet the other churches, and you guys would get a chance to get a little taste of of the different churches we're doing. So here's a picture of the the four of us. I think Alex probably showed this to you last week. Alex um, is speaking, as he said, at Hope uh, in uh, in Fort Worth this week. Randy Lanthrop is speaking in the back there, speaking at Orange Crest Community Church out in Riverside. And then uh, Josh De La Rosa, who is on the right here, uh, is speaking at Seabreeze in my place this morning. So uh, it's a lot of fun. I wanted to give you just a little glimpse of kind of what it looks like at Seabreeze. This is a, a brief video that we put on our website for people who are kind of checking it, us out and trying to see whether they might want to come visit or not. So this is not a recruitment video for you. You just stay right here. But this will give you a sense of, um, of what, what's happening at Seabreeze uh, right now. So let's take a look at this and I'll, I'll continue. Now you've been introduced to what it looks like there near the beach today. So 
little little background on me before I jump into what I want to share this morning. I, I never intended uh, to be a pastor. In fact, by my junior year in college, I had become somewhat disillusioned uh, with the church. Uh, I was completely convinced about the truth of the Bible. I'd spent the previous two years uh, doing a lot of reading, a lot of investigating. Uh, grew up in the Christian context, but then had kind of a moment of crisis, actually several years of crisis, where I just wasn't sure if this was true. And so I'd, I'd come to the point where... Uh, I was convinced the evidence really showed that the Bible was, in fact, uh, God's word. And then I was also convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He really was God in flesh. But the organized church, I, I was I was not really impressed with my experience uh, with the organized church. And so I was pretty critical. If you were talking to me at that time in my life, um, I, I wouldn't have a lot of good to say about the church. And then I was reading through the New Testament, and I came across... Um, several places where in the New Testament the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I wasn't married at the time, but I knew enough about marriage to know that if you criticize a man's wife, you're going to have problems with the man. And it it just occurred to me at that point that um, Jesus was not pleased with my critical attitude towards his bride. And so I, I had a strong thought. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was a very strong thought in my head at that point. And it was simply this, stop criticizing and start helping. And so I did. And it didn't take me long to learn that, boy, it's a lot easier to criticize stuff than it is to build stuff. And um, so I, I realized I didn't really know what I was doing. So I started praying uh, and asking God to help me to find a church that I could learn more about how to ch- do church in a way that really pleased Jesus. And I prayed for two years, not every day, but, but quite a bit. And at the end of two years, I heard about this church um, in Fort Worth, Texas called Hope Church, and I went to check this church out. It was only probably about 60 people at the time. And um, I spent uh, about a week there. And at the end of the week, I knew that this was the answer to my prayer. So I packed up everything I owned. Again, I was single at the point, so I could fit it all in, in a Honda Civic. And I don't know if you've seen the original Honda Civics. Well, this was one step above those, just go-kart plus size. So I fit everything uh, in, a, in a Honda Civic and moved there. And I spent eight years uh, at Hope in Texas, and I was deeply impacted by Harold Bullock, who started Hope and is still the pastor there at Hope, and by the people of Hope. And it turns out I wasn't the only one that was impacted by this church. Um, we've kind of lost count, but the last count I heard was about 87 churches and college ministries have been started uh, out of that church, individuals who were trained at that church and have started other churches and college ministries. And uh, in, back in 1990, my wife and I and our two kids moved to Huntington Beach to, to pastor Seabreeze. And um, I thought when I got to Seabreeze, you know, I've spent the last eight years learning. I've been trained. I, I had my master's degree um, from seminary. And I figured, you know what, I've, I'm trained and now it's just time to do this. I, I, I know enough. And so I, I pretty much did my own thing for about six years. And as a result, I suffered because I wasn't teaming with anyone else, and the church suffered. And after about six years, um, I finally humbled myself, and, and I called Harold and, and asked for some more input, and I began to connect with some of the other pastors and asked for some more input. And my wife was, was grateful that I did this. Uh, the church was very grateful that I did this. And I, I learned a lesson at that point that it was, it was, I was slow to learn. And that is that I'm not smart enough and I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. I need to be part of a team. Even as a pastor, there's a lot of people in the church, but a lot of pastors are all by themselves. And so those of us who have connected together in this network of churches, we've done this because we realize we really need each other. 
And what I want to talk this morning with you about is how teaming together helps us grow. Uh, When we're part of a church particularly, but even when we connect with other churches, how it really helps us grow as individuals and helps us grow as churches. I mean, for me personally, again and again, it's been something that Randy or Josh or Alex or Harold or some of the other guys that are in the network of churches were a part of it, something they have said or something they have done that has been just a timely piece of encouragement or a timely piece of advice. It's kind of got me back on track or kept me on track. And so none of us can do this alone. We need a team to grow. Now, after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, uh, before he ascended, He had a meeting with his disciples, and he basically gave them and us our marching orders. He made it very, very clear what he wanted to have happen next. And we, for the last 2,000 years, I mean, not us personally, we've been around for a few decades, but the church, for the last 2,000 years, we've been about doing what Jesus told us to do. So if you've been around church for a while, you're very familiar with these verses. If not, this is really helpful for you to know what we're trying to accomplish. Here's what it says in Matthew 28. 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, here's what we're to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I'm ascending to heaven, but my presence and my power is going to be with you as you do this. So if the growth target for us as followers of Christ is to obey everything Christ said, that's what he said here, I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. If that's the goal, what that means is every one of us has work to do. I've yet to meet anyone who has said anything close to, you know, just last week I finished the last thing that Jesus told us to do, and now I've pretty much nailed it. Nobody if they're at all aware of themselves, realizes, we all realize that we really have a ways to go. We all need to grow. So the question then is, how do we grow? And in our culture, we probably, the first word we gravitate to in this verse when you ask the question, so how do we do this, is the word teach. Teaching. I mean, that's what Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So what image comes to mind when you think of, of teaching? Well, it's, you know, it's a classroom. A lot of you have been to to college or are in college. And so this, you know, this is what a classroom looks like. There are different configurations. But basically, there's a teacher like me up front. I mean, this is a classroom setting. You're sitting here. You're listening to me teach. And that's what Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Or maybe now, sometimes you can do a lot of learning online. You don't need to sit in a classroom, but you can sit in front of your computer and you can read some stuff. You can watch some teaching online. You can, you can learn that way. But the word that Jesus used to describe the process of teaching is a word we're not that familiar with, and that is the word disciple. That's what he says. He wants us to make disciples. Teaching is one of the functions of a disciple, but it is not the entire process of being a disciple. Let me show you another picture. This is what a disciple looks like now. Here's a group of guys learning how to be electrical disciples. or electricians, basically. Uh, the word, the modern word that's the best functional equivalent for disciple now is apprentice. We use the word apprentice a lot. We don't use the word disciple that much. But, but it really communicates 
Pretty much the same thing. Not exactly, but pretty much the same thing. And for most of human history, this was how you learn stuff. There were some classrooms early on, but mostly, almost entirely, this is how you learned. Whatever it was you were going to do for life or for a living is you got together with a group of people and you sat under uh, people who knew more. The term we use now is journeyman. The idea is that they have been on a journey. They, they, they didn't just learn this stuff in their head. They, they've actually done this. And so then we learn, whether it's electrician, we learn how to do stuff in that field from people who have done stuff. They're, they're ahead of us. That's how we're taught. That's how we learn. We learn the skills from those who are ahead of us. But now, that's, that's not as common. If you go into the trades, this is still how you learn. Uh, if you go into to medicine, if you want to be a doctor, you do the academic part first, and then you do the apprenticeship part second, because we want you to know more than, you, we want to know, uh, like I just had surgery recently, I want to know more than this guy, you know, had a really good GPA. I want to know, does he know how to handle a scalpel? I don't care how he did his test. It, has he been trained? Has he, does he have experience in this? But for the most part, the way you advance in this world now is you advance academically. So most of the learning has shifted from an apprentice model to an academic model. You're not apprenticed under a journeyman, but you're a student under a teacher. And the way you advance and the way you graduate is primarily by passing tests. Now, there are some skills involved, but for the most part, you, you, you graduate because you have completed a class, a set of coursework, and you've passed uh, tests with, uh, with enough, a high enough grade. And this shift in our culture over the last really about 150 years, 100 particularly, about, about 150 years ago it started. This shift in the way our culture, the modern culture is now, has really shifted the way the church tends to approach growth and learning. Uh, the church has moved from a discipling kind of idea to a teaching idea. And so most Christians uh, that you will run into now have primarily an academic view of what it means to grow as a Christian. They think that it's primarily their knowledge of the Bible that will produce character and growth. So the focus is telling people what to do more than showing them a way of life, showing them how to do it. And as pastors, you know, we are asked generally by most churches, just do this well. Do a teaching. Do, give us a good message. That, that's more of a concern than leading the church to help people really grow and learn how to grow. You know, I hear this in my church often through different statements. You know, people will approach me, and, and then one of the common statements is, I, I'd really, I'm interested in, in a more of an in-depth Bible study than what you guys offer. Or I'm looking for... Um, a, a speaking style that's more in-depth than what I do. And so when I ask them, what do you mean by in-depth? They, they never mean, I've read Jesus saying, you need to love your enemies. And I don't have the first clue how to love my enemies because I can't stand my enemies. So what does that mean? How do I do that? That is what scripture means by depth. I mean, you, you talk about postgraduate work in Christianity, it's loving your enemies. I mean, that's, that's tough stuff. But they don't mean that. What they mean is, I'd really love to know, and they mentioned some obscure passage in Revelation, I can't figure this thing out. So they're talking about the deep end of the Bible, where the, most of the Bible you can understand pretty clearly, but there are pretty good chunks where it's like, you read it and you're not really sure what that means. And so that's an academic challenge. It, it can be figured out, but 
That's a thinking challenge. And that's usually what people mean when they ask for depth. They don't mean for a, an application challenge. How do I do this challenge? But how do I understand this challenge? And if, if you want to really grow, though, as a Christian, you advance not by knowledge, but by obedience. That's how you move forward. You figure out how to take what Jesus said or what the Bible said, and you do it. Then you make progress. Now, of course, you need some knowledge in order to figure out what to do. But the moment you know something that you didn't know before doesn't mean you've actually advanced. In fact, the more things you know that you're not doing, you're actually taking some steps back in growth. This is why we are called disciples of Christ, not students of Christ. And the reason is because the real tests of life occur in life. They don't occur on a test. You know, if if you're married... You know, building a good marriage, that's a real challenge. I, I wish it was as easy as just, you know, sitting down for two hours and getting a test right, and then you have a great marriage. No, it's, it's much more complicated and harder than that. If you're parenting, that's the test. That's the test. So this kind of growth takes a team. You can study alone, you can learn alone, but you can't be apprenticed or discipled alone. I used to think that it really only needed about one other person to do this. But it turns out it requires an entire church, really, in order for this to happen as God intended. So now we're going to shift to talk about what the role of the church is in this kind of growth. I want you to first understand what I meant by growth. I'm not talking about learning more stuff about the Bible. May you learn more. The big concern is may you do more. That requires discipleship. That requires an apprentice model. So now, what does the church have to do with that? The church is a word that Jesus used. He, he's the one that came up with the idea of church. And he didn't invent a new word um, when he came up with the concept of church. He used a term that was very familiar at the time. It was a Greek term. I'll put it up here on the slide. It was ekklesia is how you'd pronounce it. That's a Greek word. And what it meant to everyone that heard this word at that time was it is those who are called out to assemble. That's what the word simply means. And the way it was used in the culture at the time is whenever a herald would, would be sent out by a town to call a meeting of the town, that gathering was called an ecclesia. It was those who had been called by the town crier or the herald to gather for some purpose. That gathering was an ecclesia, a church. And so when Jesus said he would build his church, he was speaking of calling people to assemble in his name. And really, it's why you're here today. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind. We're called to assemble. I mean, if I talk to each of you, I could hear a set of different reasons as to why you actually got out of bed and did the highly unusual thing in our culture on Sunday morning and gathered here. But behind all of the individual stories, all of the individual reasons is one key reason, and that is God's pulling on your life. He's drawing you to himself. He's working in your heart and your mind and and you're responding. It wasn't an audible voice, probably. But, but God is working in your life, and he's calling you to gather. And so you got out of bed this morning, and you gathered. And this is the church. This is those who are called out to assemble. Now, Jesus describes this gathering as having tremendous power. 
In fact, he said this to his disciple Peter, who became the first leader of the church. This is the first mention of the church by Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What he's saying here is the enemy's best thinking and best efforts are going to be thwarted, are going to be opposed successfully by people like you and me gathering in the name of Jesus. Now, your response to that should be, really? This? Is that powerful? Because it sure doesn't look that powerful, does it? I mean, ooh, they're all going to get together. Watch out. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to talk to each other, and they're going to listen to some things out of the Word, and then they're going to go get lunch. Oh, that sounds very dangerous, very powerful. There's no news vans out front gathered to cover this as we walk out in all of our power and glory. So it's very easy to, to miss the power that's in this simple gathering of Christians that occurs around the world. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, just two chapters later, and which is the, the second and final mention by Jesus of the word church in the New Testament. He tells us what's so powerful about this gathering. And this, this is the passage I really want to focus on this morning with you. He identifies two growth elements that occur whenever we team together, whenever we gather together as a church. Now, I'm going to read the first part of what we're going to look at in Matthew 18, and then I'll tell you what the growth element is. But I have to give you kind of a shock warning. When I read this, it's going to sound a little shocking. So just, you know, if, if, try not to bolt. Try not to run out. The, if you need to leave, you're welcome to leave. But th- th- don't be intimidated by this. I'm going to help you understand what this, is, what this is saying. There's tremendous power in this. So listen to this, what Jesus said, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I warned you, that's one of the verses that if you've read that, you're like, okay, moving on. I don't know exactly what to do with that. And people just kind of move on. But this is, there's a lot being said here that's very helpful to us. The key way I would summarize these verses is this. Growth element number one is this in your outline, your message, your listening notes. When we team together, life gets more real. Life gets more real. I mean, these verses sound pretty heavy-handed, don't they? But this is not talking about showing up at some big church meeting like this so that you can get confronted about the sin in your life. So don't worry, that's not going to happen. That won't ever happen in a gathering like this. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Who would ever have the right to do something like this, to address the sin in your life? Who would ever have the right to do that? Someone who's close to you, right? That's why it refers to them as brother or sister. They're like a brother or sister to you. They're close enough to be personally impacted by your sin. And what that means is in the context of those close relationships, your sin's going to come up and their sin will as well. If you have actual brothers and sisters, you confront each other's sin all the time growing up. I mean, that's just the way close relationships work. You see, the issue is you and I right now sitting here, we, we look great. Uh, we, we appear friendly. 
But we all need to change. We all have patterns of sin in our lives. And if change is going to occur, if growth is going to occur, if we're going to move towards learning how to obey everything Jesus taught, if we're going to make movement in that direction, well, that's, that's going to require a couple things. The first it's going to require is we're going to have to be aware of what needs to change. And secondly, we're going to have to be motivated enough to do something about it because change, that's really, really hard. People don't change just very easily. They, they make statements of change, but real change, that, that's pretty hard to do. You know, my life, when I, was, uh, when I was single, I thought of myself as a pretty decent guy. Then I got married. And then I had kids. And I discovered I wasn't near as decent as I thought I was. Why? Was it, was it my wife that was the problem or my kids that were the problem? No. The, the pressure of those close relationships, that that team, the family team, forced some stuff to the surface that when I was single and had lots of free time and very little pressure on my life, I didn't, it, stuff didn't squeeze out as much. See, in a sense, what happened is my life suddenly had a drop cloth. Let me show you a picture of a drop cloth. If you've done any paint, you know what a drop cloth is. You know, when you, when you spill paint, it goes out in the drop cloth, and you can, it's there to protect the floor, but you can see, oh, yeah, I just spilled some paint. It's right there on that white drop cloth. And that's what, what happens in close relationships is those relationships become a drop cloth for your life. You know, before when I was single, I could just kind of ooze sin all over the place and move on. But now my sin impacted my wife and it impacted my kids. You know, my personal sin at that point became real to me, more real. It was real, but not to me. I knew in theory that I was a sinner. If anyone asked me on a test, uh, are you a sinner or are you perfect? It's like, oh, I I know the answer to that. I'm a sinner. I I know that one. So I knew in theory the right answer, but I I couldn't see the impact of my own sin. It wasn't until I had the drop cloth of those close relationships that I got to see that. So what I'm saying is all alone, we, we remain pretty ignorant about what needs to change in our life. And we stay pretty unmotivated about it. I mean, you may be fine just wallowing in whatever mess of sin that your life is right now, but those who are close enough to you to really care about you and, more importantly, be hurt by you, they're not okay with it. If you push them enough, they're going to say something. And we tend to review, or we tend to view, rather, relational problems as enemies when really they're some of the best friends you'll have. I never respond to them that way. You know, if I have a relational conflict, I never respond with, oh, good, this is great. No, it's always, oh, man. But it's an opportunity to to get me moving and maybe them moving in what God wants to do to change them. Now, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, the team that helps you grow in the direction of learning to obey everything Jesus taught is the church. The church is designed to be a drop cloth. A safe place where problems can be seen and help brought to bear on whatever your, your patterns of life are. But that cannot occur in a setting like this. In a teaching setting. This has a purpose, but that isn't going to occur in this setting. I mean, sitting here this morning, your need to change isn't causing me any pain. Isn't causing anyone else any pain. So everything that I say this morning, everything that Alex says or anyone else who speaks here, says on any Sunday morning, 
you have to understand what we are saying right now is is true. It's words that are spoken, though, in theory, not in reality. And therefore, all you have to do this morning, and you don't have to do this, you know, externally. You can do it through the inside. You can, you can nod your head. Yeah, that sounds right. Or you can on the inside. If, if you're thinking this, I prefer you not to do it on the outside. But yeah, on the inside, you can be like, nah, I don't agree with that. Well, that's fine. All you have to do is kind of thumbs up or thumbs down with whatever the ideas are. Because this is just theory. It's true, but it's not, it doesn't have the bite of reality yet. But if you really knew me and I really knew you, we, we had a relationship, a real friendship. And um, you sinned against me or I sinned against you. Okay, now we're dealing with reality. Let me explain it this way. I, I could do a message on what the Bible says about gossip. It's, it's opposed to gossip because it destroys relationships. It tears apart friends. And I could do this message on gossip and you could be sitting there going, yeah, that's, that's really true. And then you could just walk out here and at lunch you could gossip about somebody. Having nodded this way. Because it's just in theory. But if you gossip about me and we're friends, okay, now you have a problem. Not a theory problem. You have a real problem. See, that's, that's why it takes a team to grow. If you're really going to learn any of the things that Jesus taught and put them into practice, you're going to need a drop cloth, a context of relationships where people really know you and care about you and you really know them and you really care about them. So it's in the context of close relationships that things can get real and change can occur. So the question is, how does that work in reality in a church? And that's what this passage talks about. For the most part, growth occurs as we pick a church, and then over time we form brother and sister level friendships with a few in that church. You can't do that with everybody, but a few. That's, that just takes time. But the investment is well worth it. Because when our sin causes problems in those relationships, we now have someone who really cares about us, who can come to us directly with the problem. That's a safe way to handle problems or as it says in this passage it starts out it's just between the two of you it's just the two of you now most relational conflicts are not safe the reason is because they're not handled face to face it's not just between the two people who are having the the struggle what happens most often in a relational conflict you don't go talk to that person in a safe way face to face to try to figure out what's going on here. Now, you, you talk about them behind your back. What I'm saying is relational conflicts are going to happen in your life. They're just, unless you move to some remote location and can figure out how to sustain life on your own, you're going to have relational conflicts. And most people have relational conflicts as they move through life in very unsafe ways. They're done in anger. They're done, you know, in, in hurt. They're done by talking behind the back of other people. But this is an offer that says, no, you, you just go to them, the two of you. You don't talk behind their back. You just go face to face. But what if the two of you can't make any progress? That's not uncommon. You know, a lot, most things can be addressed in the safety of the two people who really care about each other. But not always. 
What if you can't make any progress? What if they, they say, no, I'm not doing that, and you say, yes, you are, and they say, no, I'm not? Well, now you're stuck. Well, what do you do then? It goes on to say in this passage, if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why one or two others? I mean, it sounds like so you're just trying to pile on now. That's not the point. What's the reason to get two or three others? To establish everything, to establish the matter. What does that mean? What it's saying here is try to help figure out what's really going on here to establish what, what is the truth here. I mean, maybe you brought up something that is really your own issue. And they're not doing anything wrong. Or maybe they need to hear it from more than just you. But that's why you, you add a couple, two or three more people who know them, who know you, and say, hey, we're talking about this and we can't seem to get progress on this. What do you see? Is something going on here? But what if the sin is in fact confirmed? Yep, that is a problem. And the person refuses to take it seriously. What do you do then? Well, the next thing it says, well, you tell it to the church. Now, not stand up in public in a meeting like this, but you go up line to church leadership. See, the advantage is you're in a context where it's not just you and your ideas. You've got people that are further ahead of you that can help figure out what's really going on here. Without this kind of context, it's really hard to grow that much over time. This is a, this is a tremendous help. Well, what if they don't listen to the church leadership or whatever the structure is in this? Well, if they refuse to listen, as it says, even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. That sounds awful. I mean, do you even know? How, how are you supposed to treat a pagan or a tax collector? Do you know? What does Jesus teach on this? Well, tax collectors, we don't have a lot of those running around. Tax auditors, but generally we pay our taxes online. Pagans, that, that simply means someone for whom God is not a factor in life. It's not a derogatory term. It's a descriptive term. When they make decisions, God's just not a factor. Well, the question is, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors in his day? He loved them. In fact, that was one of the great points of confusion and irritation among the religious leaders of the day was Jesus spent so much of his social time hanging out with pagans and tax collectors. So what this is saying is if, if you've gone to a person that you're really close to in the church and you're not getting anywhere and, and you've got a couple other people to get a read on this to make sure this is accurate and still they're like, nope, I disagree. And then you go up line to whatever the structure is in the church and you get their read on it. And they say, you know, I think you're right. And this person is willing to look at the entire church that they have close relationships with and say, nope, all of you are wrong. What do you know about that person? They're not really serious about growth. So you, they may not be a pagan, but at this point, they're not serious about God. So you treat them that way. You love them, you care for them, but you stop expecting them to be on this track where they're really wanting to learn how to obey everything Jesus taught because they've just given evidence, at least right now, they have no interest. You love them. You see, there's two size gatherings in a church. There's a size of this size, a larger group gathering. And then there's the smaller group gatherings. The smaller group gatherings is, is where relationships can be built. You can meet people here. You can learn a lot of truth here. 
This is really important, but it's in the smaller gatherings that you really get a chance to get to know people, and there's a, a, a chance you can really grow. It's kind of like the difference between visiting Italy and moving into someone's house in Italy. The culture, the Italian culture, if you visit, you're going to be able to learn some stuff about it. You're going to be able to observe it, but it's not going to change you. But if you spend a year living in the Italian house, that culture is going to begin to shape you. That's the difference between large meetings and small meetings in church. Large meeting, you can learn a lot. They're great, but it's when you build relationships that you really get a chance to grow. So I wanted to spend most time on that point. So let me turn to the second element uh, more quickly here. The growth element number two is when we team together, God gets more involved. So the first element, when we team together, life gets more real. And if life isn't real, then growth doesn't occur. You can't grow in theory, you grow in reality. But the second thing is God gets more involved. So here's what God goes on, or Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 18, 18 through 20. He goes on to say this, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will also be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Well, these verses have been used in all kinds of strange ways. Because you look at this and you say, wow, can that really be true? If I really need something, I just have to get one other person to agree with me in prayer and then it's going to happen? Well, this has some logical problems very quickly. What if two people are praying about an opposite outcome? Will their agreements cancel out each other? I mean, I was in Texas this last week, and there's a lot of people in that state praying that Houston would win the World Series. There's a lot of people here praying that Dodgers would win the World Series. So, so was it like a number thing in the end where there was more people in Texas praying, and that's why Houston won, and less people in L.A. praying, and that's why? No, this is not what it, you know, if you read any part of the Bible just kind of in its out of context, you don't understand what it's saying. What this is talking about is not how to win the lottery or how to get what you want out of life. It's talking about how people change. This is the continuation of what Jesus said about dealing with relational difficulties. The teaming of two or more people in prayer is a continuation of the teaming of two or more people to address sin. It's a continuation of the theme. What this is saying is if you really want to change, not only are you going to have to be in enough relationships where your sin can be exposed and where you can be motivated because I don't want this relationship to be a continual problem where you're motivated to change. Not only do you need that, but you need God's help. You need more than you praying for you. You need some people who really care about you who are praying for you. So what God says is when two or three get together to pray about these matters, there I am with them. I thought God was everywhere. Well, he is. It's not talking about God suddenly shows up and he's been absent. No. What this is saying is from our perspective, we don't always see the evidence of his presence. He's here. He's at work in your life. But you may not be aware of what he's doing. What what Jesus is saying here is when two or three of you are in these kinds of relationships, you're in the context of a church. And therefore, when relational problems come up, there's a safe way to handle this. And you can really get all kinds of growth leverage from it. And then when you add to that, 
those same people, you're praying for them and they're praying for you? Well, you just, you watch. And I'm going to show up and do some stuff that it's going to be amazing. I will act in some ways that I wouldn't have acted apart from that. Why two or three more? Well, because two not only means that life becomes more real, it also means that God becomes more real. Not in reality, but to us, our perception. You see, when we gather like this, or when we gather in groups of three or four or five and we pray, we are praying to a God we cannot see. And when you do that all by yourself, that's good. But when you do that with other people and they agree that God is real, well, that that helps us. You see, multiple witnesses confirm reality. You know, recently I was down at the beach in Huntington and I was pretty sure I saw some dolphins swimming by. It's not that unusual, but, you know, it was dolphins out there, I thought. But I wasn't sure because, you know, the dolphins come up and then they go down. And then they come up and then they go down. And so I turned to the person next to me and said, I think I see dolphins over there. Do you see dolphins? So I looked for a while and I said, yeah, those are dolphins. Okay. That confirmed reality to me. It's one thing for me to see it, but if more people see it, well, then it's more real. I'm not crazy. The dolphins were really there. So what's happening when we gather here like this to pray or to worship or we do it in the smaller context to hear God's word together? The reason why, you know why we're doing this? For most of us, it's because we are convinced God is real, even though we can't see him. And so what goes on on a Sunday morning or when you meet in smaller groups This isn't ever said verbally, but what goes on is you go through your week and you're just hammered by whatever the challenges are, the difficulties are, and you're working with a lot of people who are pagans. Don't call them pagans. But in other words, God is just not a reference to them. They need to be loved. It's not a derogatory term. But by the time you come to Sunday, you're kind of like, yeah, God's real, I think, I think. And then you get here and we start singing and we gather around God's word and you look around and it's like, Okay, this person thinks God's real enough to be here. This person thinks God's real enough to be here. They, I must not be crazy. I was beginning to wonder by Friday if I'm crazy to be paying out my life for all of this. This must be real. Either that or this is a mass illusion. You know, some people say that. But you know what? You gather in a group of 100 people and you say, you know, God's real. That really helps me. That really helps you. You know, if we're we're not teaming with God's people, what that means is this isn't real to us. People who want to be individually spiritual, they often do that because they don't want any demands placed on their life by God. Because one of the key things about reality is it places demands on you. You can only walk out of this room here or here. That's reality. If you independently want to walk out here, reality will impose its will on you and say, nope, and you'll get a bump on your head. When we treat God as real, it it puts some demands on us. Now, if this is not real to us, what God is saying here is, if this is not real enough for you to gather together to pray, then when you pray to me, I'll treat your prayers In the same spirit that they're offered. Not real. I'm not going to do as much. 
So if you really want God to grow you, and you really want to see God show up in some amazing ways over time, then the church is what you want to invest your life in. Not just the big meetings. Those are important. You'll learn a lot in large gatherings like this. But in the small gatherings, where you take the time and invest in the relationships, and you pray together, you'll get to see God grow you and grow others over time. Because, well, when we team together, life gets more real. And when we team together, God gets more involved. So let me uh, close this in prayer. I want to invite the band up on stage while I pray. And then we'll, we'll sing a few songs. So let's pray together. Father, we are, we are grateful for your word to us, for your, your help to us, for the safe place that the church can be, a place where our sin can be not only brought to the surface, but dealt with intelligently and helpfully in kindness and in mercy. And we really, we really need this. We need to learn more than just the, the ideas. We, we need to change. We need to grow. We need to learn. We need to be apprenticed and discipled into how to do this. So I pray for everyone in this room that you would, you would speak to them clearly about what their next step is in stepping in. Maybe it's stepping into a, a team here at this church or into one of the, the groups that meet regularly. Uh, I just pray, God, you give them clarity in, in what step they need to take next. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.